welcome to this uh, Wednesday after Super Tuesday. Firstly, let me introduce uh, myself. My name is Mick Cox, or Professor Mick Cox. I'm director uh, of LSE Ideas, although somehow I've just got a promotion to become chair of the London School of Economics. I hope the salary follows. Um, it's uh, great to welcome you all here this evening, judging by the numbers and the buzz already as we came down. Clearly, this is going to be a very exciting debate and a very interesting debate. And welcome, of course, to, to the LSE Ideas. And this event this evening is hosted by the LSE U.S. Center for Public Discussion, of which Peter Trubovitz, at the very end, is the very successful director of it. has done a great job, Peter, if I might say so personally, in launching and keeping the U.S. Center on the road and no doubt doing many great things, including this thing uh, this evening. There will be a little bit of organization for this. Uh, I'm going to give a few questions to each of the panelists in terms, not too many, and then we will leave a period of time, obviously, from, for questions and answers uh, at the end. Let me just also say to you that the events are being recorded, uh, so anything you say will be remembered for the rest of history. Um, so if you don't want to be sued by somebody in about 20 years' time or next week, beware. Um, we hope to make this into a podcast, but my, my notes say, say, never say a podcast will definitely be available, as there may be technical issues. Uh, but as we never have any technical problems at the LSE, that won't happen. Um, the other thing is I've got to advise you to put your mobile phone on silent, please, now, uh, to avoid disrupting the event. Um, and I also want to announce the Twitter hashtag for the event. As you can see there, it's displayed on the background slide. I'll very, very briefly now introduce the panelists, and then I'll sit down and then start asking the panelists each some questions, and then we'll move to the questions and answers to pick up on what happened uh, yesterday and what the implications of this are going to be for the United States of America, uh, for the two parties, and indeed for the rest of the world who are watching this election, I have to say, with enormous wonder, uh, interest, and, and potentially fear. But we, sh <laughs> we shall wait and see, and hope, and hope, because it is also a great illustration of American democracy at work as well. Uh, I'll introduce each of our panellists in turns, uh, Kate Andrews, who on Monday worked for the Adam Smith Institute, but by Tuesday seems to be working for the Institute of Economic Affairs. <laughs> Kate, congratulations. Uh, uh, Kate is head of communications and research. She was head of communications research at the Adam Smith, but now is at the IEA. Uh, our next speaker along there is Steve Erlanger, who is the London Bureau Chief for the New York Times. Gideon Rackman, in the middle there, so to speak, is Chief Foreign Affairs Columnist for the Financial Times. Uh, Stephanie Rickard, over there next to Peter, is Associate Professor of Government here uh, at the LSE. And last but by no means least, uh, Pete Truvitz, friend and colleague, Professor of International Relations, and I'd said earlier on, Director of the U.S. Center at the LSE. I'll ask the first question from here and then I'll come and sit down. And the first question is going to Kate, um, and this will go right along the line. So this is the first generic question. What is the very big takeaway from yesterday's results, Kate? Why don't you begin? We'll move down there. We'll move on to some other questions. Kate, over to you. Sure. Thanks for having me tonight. Uh, 
the biggest takeaway, in my opinion, is that the politics of hope and change hasn't worked yet, but people haven't given up on it. Um, on the Democrat side, Barack Obama, who promised hope and change, uh, while he has managed to get unemployment figures down and has had some successes, hasn't convinced people that the U.S. is all that better. Uh, the middle class is still struggling. Um, wages are stagnating. Premiums on insurance, even under Obamacare, have risen, and people don't feel like they got the change they wanted. And on the Republican side, when the Republicans took back the House and the Senate, they promised massive change as well. They said, we will repeal Obamacare. We will lower taxes. And they shouldn't have promised that because the Oval Office is quite important in those decisions, and they failed to bring that change around as well. I think Americans on the whole in both parties are incredibly angry, and they're still hopeful and they still want change, and that's why we're seeing some very radical votes coming out of the woodwork. Uh, Steve, over to you. Um, thank you. I think if I had to put money down, I still would bet on a President Hillary Clinton. But Trump, it looks like, <laughs> is on his way. Well, you can leave now, please. You to <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're supposed to be neutral here, you that's know? Right. Yes. Well... You can treat me like Trump in the sense that I can contradict myself and just make myself more popular. <laughs> um, it does look like he's on his way if particularly next Tuesday in Florida works in his, on his behalf to a shocking nomination um, and a tremendous war within the Republican Party, which reminds me of Barry Goldwater. Um, it'll be clarifying and very interesting and uh, makes it very clear that the Republican Party itself is in deep, deep trouble. Um, but I'm also very, very much taken with the vulnerability of Hillary Clinton, not just, I mean, Bernie Sanders had no real reason to run her so closely, but on issues of, of trust, on inequality, on her relationship with banks and Goldman Sachs, on the sense that she's just another inheritor of a long tradition. I mean, a friend of mine said quite rightly that the mood of the, of the public seems to be not for coronation but for lop off their heads. And that's been the kind of year it's been. And if you look at the figures, I just plumping a piece in my own newspaper today by Tom Edsel, who goes through a lot of the economic figures of what's happened to living standards and to the middle class in America in the last 40 years. Um, it's pretty telling, and it helps explain the anger many people feel. Thanks very much. Uh, Gideon. Well, my uh, takeaway is it may sound banal, but it's don't discount the opinion polls. And the reason I say that is I was, remember being in Washington in November and doing the rounds of think tanks. The first thing was that trying to find people in the, even in the conservative think tanks who'd signed up for the Trump campaign was impossible, actually. Everybody I knew was either with Rubio or with Trump, uh, well, not with Trump, with Rubio or, or Bush. Um, but you'd say to them, well, you know, Trump seems to be way ahead in the polls. They said, oh, forget it. He's not going to win. You know? And he said, but he's been ahead for four months. And they said, oh, well, look, it's, just, it's not going to happen. But it did happen. And that's not just a backward-looking reflection, because I think, obviously, we're now all intrigued. If he gets the nomination, surely he can't win. And I'm afraid when people say that, it reminds me of people, people saying, well, he couldn't win the Republican nomination. If you look, actually, at the Hillary versus 
uh, Trump head-to-heads, he's two points behind on the real clear politics average polls. I mean, that's nothing several months out. Mm. And given all the things that uh, Steve has said about the mood of the country and the weakness of Hillary as a candidate, potential weakness, uh, I don't find it at all unimaginable that we could end up with President Trump in November, I'm afraid. Okay. Stephanie. So my take-home point at the end of uh, Super Tuesday is don't discount the delegates. So we saw a lot of um, attention paid to states, particularly, for example, Rubio. Oh, he finally won a state. He did. He won Minnesota. But that victory only earned him one additional vote over the second-place Cruz. So when we look at the delegate counts, when we look at who's racked up what delegates, it seems like the picture's quite clear on the Democrat side. Hillary has twice as many delegates as Sanders, but on the Republican side, it's really unclear. It's not clear how Rubio can get to the delegate numbers he needs. It's not clear how Cruz can do it. And Trump is 25% of the way there. So I think that the take-home point is to not forget the importance of delegates, and the upcoming states that we see in two weeks. Florida, this big state with a lot of delegates, has a different system. They have a winner-take-all system. So the Republican candidate that wins the most votes in that state takes the delegates. And last but by no means least, Peter. So what's the takeaway? Let me count the ways. Um, You know, one, I mean, you could just simply say that Trump's ability to win two states like Massachusetts and Alabama is stunning. Massachusetts ranks number one in the United States in terms of education. Alabama is 44 or 46, somewhere in that range. Um, Hillary Clinton's amazing um, backing from the African-American community rivaling, really, uh, Barack Obama's in 2008. But as I thought about this over the course of the day, the thing that really stuck with me were the victory speeches that both Trump and Clinton gave last night. They weren't about the primaries anymore. They were about the general election. And Clinton's, Clinton spoke about making America whole again, an obvious reference to Trump's make America great again, but also a reference to the kind of divide-and-conquer tactics that Trump has been using in the campaign. Um, So a message of of hope, really. In Trump's case, he focused directly on Hillary Clinton. And he said, look, Obama's been in office for eight years, and the economy is still not doing well. She's been around for 25 years. What gives us any reason to believe that another Washington insider could make a difference? So I think this kind of shapes up as a battle between hope versus change, as opposed to hope and change. Okay, great. So uh, the second question, just to, to set off the, uh, the discussion, and I'm going to start with Steve and then work down and come back here, is, and you've already answered this in a way, Steve, uh, what has surprised you most about the whole campaign this year, not just Super yeah. Tuesday? Well, I would say... Two things, if I'm allowed. One is simply the implosion of the Republican Party. I mean, it really is quite extraordinary. And, and by that, I partly mean Jeb Bush failing to gain any traction, despite all the money, I mean, that he had and the support. Um, quite extraordinary. And the second thing, just briefly, is how old they all are. <laughs> I mean, it's really bizarre. I mean, I, yeah. story, I, I mean, I thought we'd moved with Obama to a new generation. And here we are, a blast from the past. I mean, they're really old. 
I mean, I think... I, I, could you calm down on that one? Well, <laughs> I think Hillary would be older or just about as old as Reagan when he entered White House. Trump is in, I think, 70. Sanders is 74. I mean, it's really quite extraordinary. Anyway. There we go. Thank you, thank you for that endorsement for all people. Uh, Gideon. Right. It shows advances in plastic surgery and hair transplants can do wonders. For, uh, but, um, are, you, are you being autobiographical here, by the way? <laughs> leave you to judge that. But, uh, okay. um, no, I mean, I guess... So what surprised me, I, I mean, advancing on what I said about uh, Trump, it's that I was as taken by surprise as, as anyone else by the fact that he could break all the rules of what you can say in politics and not pay any price. Yeah. I mean, I remember when he said that thing about McCain. I thought, if you're running uh, for the Republican nomination and you say that McCain was not a war hero and you yourself avoided the draft in Vietnam, I mean, how vulnerable can you make yourself? Didn't pay any price. Then he accuses Megyn Kelly of, uh, you know, asking questions of him because she was, you know, on her period. And you think, oh my God, how can he? You know, that's unforgivable. Then, then he mocks a disabled reporter. Then he refuses to condemn the KKK. I mean, it's astonishing stuff. And yet, nothing seems to bring him down. Mm. And uh, you have to ask yourself. I mean, it's certainly an interesting for all other politicians who, you know, so carefully calibrate what they say. And yet this guy can apparently give offence from left, right and centre and it actually strengthens him. Um, why is that? I guess that must mean that to some extent he's either saying something else that's so powerful that people discount it or maybe they even respond to it because it's part of this iconoclasm, the sense that this is a guy who lives by his own rules, who won't uh, be politically correct um, and somehow people seem to like it. But it is... Certainly, that's the thing that su so su surprised me most. Thanks. Uh, Stephanie? I'm afraid I have the same answer, Trump. I mean, it's just so surprising. Yeah. The, the pattern of states he won on Super Tuesday, nobody has won since 1960. Right. He's somehow putting together a new or different coalition, and it's reflective of the, the fragmentation we see in the Republican Party. And it's not even clear that that fragmentation is Tea Party, non-Tea Party. There seems to be some shifting of coalition, some shifting of dynamics that he's being able to exploit. And it's just, it's really different. Our, our models of politics, our models of these parties are incapable of, I think, really explaining this rise. So for me, that's the biggest surprise and continues to be as he outperforms. I agree with all these points. I mean, these are all great points. I, I think one that I would just add um, is I, I've been surprised. I shouldn't have been, but I've, I've been surprised by the depth and the breadth of the anger and resentment in the United States right now. People are pissed off. They're pissed off at Washington. They're pissed off at Wall Street. And it has just, you know, it's, it's clearly played just an unbelievable role in the Republican primaries, but it's also really played a role in the Democratic primaries. And usually anger doesn't translate into delegates, but this year it is. I mean, especially on the Republican side. And so what it leaves me to believe is that whoever ends up being president, whether it's Trump or Clinton or I don't know, like, I don't think it's going to be Bloomberg, but like some, <laughs> some other name some other a third party candidate or something i mean there's a real problem with trust and credibility right now in the united states and it's going to be 
really hard governing going forward. Okay. Well, two months ago, I was most shocked by how gullible I thought Americans were, that they believed that Trump would get a sovereign country to pay for an infrastructure project on American soil, i.e. the wall, um, and, 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 that, and that Sanders supporters thought that he was going to be able to get through a single-payer health care system when the president currently, when he had the House and the Senate controlled by the Democrats, also wasn't able to get through a single-payer health care system. I thought, what are Americans thinking? Um, then I wised up, and I realized that they were so far past being gullible. They were just completely bored of the whole system. People have been promising different policies for years that haven't been delivered. I don't think Americans, Republican or Democrat, are expecting much of that anymore. I think they just want to blow everything up. And Trump gives them that opportunity. Sanders gives them that opportunity. And they're, they're taking it. I mean, less so on the Democratic side. I think Hillary Clinton inevitably will be the nominee. But Bernie Sanders hasn't even been attacking her. He's been very friendly to her. And look at how close he's come to beating her in some of these states. It's remarkable. Yeah. Okay, we now move on to the, uh, to the next question, which I don't fully understand, so I'll ask a, a similar but dissimilar question, if you understand. Um, I'm supposed to say, I'm not feeling very reassured, Gideon. Um, <laughs> Who wrote this script? (laughs) Anyway, it must have been the BBC. Um, But I suppose the larger question here, the larger question, because, you know, we're living outside the United States, then we have a a large number of Americans both listening to this and in the audience today and and on the platform. But I suppose the big question is America and the world. I suppose, break that down a wee bit, what impact do you think this election has already had on the world? Half a million Brits apparently wanted to sign a petition to prevent... Donald Trump going back to Scotland or whatever uh, to play golf or reclaim his property up there, I don't know which. But, I mean, broadly speaking, what, what do you think is the... What has been the impact so far? Because I think the impact so far has been pretty dramatic and big time. Uh, look at the size of the audience today. And, and what impact do you think is going to have... Will depend a lot cool. on, on, on the, the outcome, outcome, Gideon. Yeah. So I'll ask that question. Look, if it depends... It, it, I think it would be very hard to find many Donald Trump supporters outside the U.S. or in Western Europe, except on the far right. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, Jean-Marie Le Pen endorsed Trump over the weekend. Oh, that's good. And, uh, <laughs> and I think, actually, if he were to win, it would be a huge boost to Marine Le Pen, oddly. It would legitimize yeah. that whole far right discourse in Europe, yeah. that sort of nationalist, nativist discourse. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it... If Hillary beats him and beats him handily, people will say, well, that was really weird, but, you know, it's kind of back to normal. Um, they, they might not be right, actually, because I think it would have revealed something really quite disturbing about the United States, even if Trump merely gets the nomination. But, you know, Hillary will be in charge and, and will, it will be more or less... She's a continuity candidate. She was Obama's Secretary of State, etc. If Trump wins... Whew, I mean, it's, it's very, very... You know, it's, it's kind of... I don't want to make this too personal, but I mean, I'm sort of representative, I guess, of a lot of mainstream opinion in the UK, which has seen the US as a positive force in the world. Um, And I remember having a discussion with a friend of mine who was a Corbynite, and we were saying, well, why could you never vote for Corbyn? And for me, actually, it came down to the fact that as far as Corbyn is concerned, I think he sees the US as basically a malign force, and I don't. I think it's been a very positive force. It would be very hard to maintain that view of a benign United States if Donald Trump were president. And I think that would be 
true of a lot of people in the West, and therefore I think it would begin to really rupture the Western alliance. Of course, they would have to do business with the United States. We're members of NATO. That wouldn't end, etc., etc. Mm. But it would be pose huge question marks over the Western alliance and also over Trump's attitude to it. Because I mean, he is. If you listen to what he says on foreign policy, he's basically an isolationist. I mean, he wants to abrogate more or less the treaties with Japan and South Korea. Sees no point in them. Uh, so you would have an America that was resigning from the role of world policemen and America's closest allies recoiling from it, and it would be a revolution. Stephanie? It is hard to predict what would happen until we know the outcome of the election, but even the campaign, even having Trump just in the campaign, has antagonized our labors. Right? We've seen uh, former president of Mexico, Fox, come out and say some pretty incendiary things about uh, Trump. We've seen the current president say, I don't even want to say his name. Right? So we've already seen Trump, just as a candidate, antagonizing our neighbors as well. Beyond that, I think it's interesting to note that this backlash that we see in the U.S., is replicated elsewhere, right? Corbyn is an outside candidate. What we saw happen in the Irish elections, uh, you know, they're voting for non-establishment parties, new parties. So maybe there's something happening, not just in the U.S., maybe this isn't a U.S.-specific phenomenon, but this sort of anti-establishment anger permeating more than just U.S. politics. Yeah, I I really agree with that. I, I think that what you see in the United States, I mean, is, is what you see. You see versions of it in France and Hungary and in Poland, now Germany, and you see it here. And I agree with that. And I, I, and, and I think, you know, what's happening in the U.S. is that, and I, I think Trump really represents this, is the U.S. is flirting with isolationism, kind of at least rhetorically right now, in a way that I don't think it has since... I mean, I think you have to go back to the 1970s in the post-Vietnam period where these kinds of attitudes were very much on display. The idea, as Gideon mentioned, that and Trump has talked about this, the U.S. should scale back its commitments in Asia, in Europe, or at least it should redefine the burden-sharing a relationship, which he thinks is a one-way street. The U.S. puts its troops over here. What does it get in return? That's how he puts it. Bad deal. He's, you know, all about the art of the deal. That's a bad deal as far as he's concerned. (laughs) And, you know, he's for a strong military, but it's not a military that should be used for promoting democracy around the world. I mean, I think it's significant that Robert Kagan, a neoconservative writer, just a couple days ago in the Washington Post, said if it comes down to it, he won't vote for Trump, he'll vote for Hillary Clinton. He doesn't see a place for that kind of neoconservative, in-your-face, or let's say Wilsonianism with boots on uh, in the Republican Party, a Republican Party that Trump was leading. Um, Well, if we're just talking about the Trump effect, uh, I don't think he's had much of an impact on this side of the Atlantic. I think he's mostly provided you all with some excellent television. Um, I completely agree that he has been intimidating Mexico, and, and I find that deplorable, but we haven't seen his impact over here yet. Um, I think that he bred some pretty illiberal thoughts when he inspired that petition. I found it so deeply upsetting that people were signing a petition that Donald Trump himself would have approved of, banning people from a country based on their beliefs. Um, But besides that, I don't think he's had much of an impact. What worries me so much about a Trump presidency uh, is that we have no idea 
what he would do. Mm-hmm. I agree right now we, we think he's leaning towards sort of an isolationist, but sort of also big state, big military perspective, but we have no idea. The man was a Democrat five years ago. It, we, we can't even use the word flip-flopping on him because what he does is so much more radical. Uh, President Trump, we have no idea what his relationship with Mexico or the UK would be, what he'd want to do with the military, if his brash actions would lead him to do something extreme with the military, or if he'd hold back. I don't know, and not knowing actually scares me a lot more than knowing what Hillary Clinton would do. Okay, All right. okay. we're going to nope. move on. Nope. Yep, sorry. Okay. Yep, no, 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 no. Oh, sorry, Steve. Yep. Right. I don't, I don't, <laughs> that's what I meant. We are going to move on. No, no, sorry. Steve. All right, that's what I meant. Move upward. Move up. Yes. Um, up. Oh, yes. <laughs> I don't think Trump has any clue what he's going to do. I don't even think Trump actually expects to be president. But, but, but let's see what You're happens. You're sure about that, right? No, 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 no. But, I mean, he seems to have this overweening confidence that he can get into a room with anyone right. and come out a with a deal. Looking at some of his businesses, you wonder how well that's going to work out. <laughs> um, the thing that shocked me most of all was when he said, you know, they were going to crush things like ISIS and kill their families as well, as well? Oh. which in some ways is a war crime. Um, Just and nobody said anything. He's endorsed torture um, as well. I mean. And endorsed torture and blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, I think he's pretty much um, America should be great again. I can make it great again. We don't really know how much it's going to cost. We don't know really much about anything. Ex- I don't think, however, he's going to ban Muslims. I don't think he would put huge tariffs on China. I mean, I just think he just says whatever comes into his head for the moment. And asked who his foreign policy advisors are, he says, well, he, he, he gets what he needs from watching the Sunday talk shows. <laughs> so I agree with you. We don't know. We really don't know. And um, it's very hard to put him into any particular slot. Okay, let's... Very reassuring. <laughs> now, you're meant to say you're not reassured. Though. Oh, I'm not reassured, sorry. I've gone off script. I'll shut up. As we're at the London School of Economics, I'm bound to ask a trade question uh, because there is a trade issue, uh, the TTIP and TPP. Stephanie, you've got to begin this. You're uh, one of our trade experts here at the LSE. So in, in, in isolation, whoever wins, will it be bad or good for free trade, and specifically, will it be good or bad for TPP, which is the Trans-Pacific and the Trans-Atlantic trade relations, or what? What do you think is going to come out at the other end? Certainly for the next year, two years, everything's on hold. It's bad news. It's bad news for the next year or two years. Everybody's running away from free trade. And what's interesting is that trade, over the past couple of decades, since the 1990s, trade has unified the Republican Party. It's been an issue around which they agree, they can unify, they're pro-business, pro-market. It's the Democrats that traditionally have been split and fragmented over trade. But now in the primary contest, we see the Republicans fractured on trade. We see Rubio taking the traditional party stance, pro-business, pro-market. And then on the other end, you have Trump. Now, I agree, we don't have a voting record for Trump, unlike Rubio and Cruz and even Hillary. We know how they vote on trade. We don't know how Cruz is going to vote on trade, but his rhetoric is scary. His rhetoric is very protectionist. He's called NAFTA a disaster, TPP a disaster. 
So we have this issue that used to unify Republicans now dividing Republicans. And on the Democrat side, both Bernie and Hillary have said have come out against TPP. <coughs> Bernie's always been staunchly protectionist. For Hillary, this is a flip-flop. As Secretary of State, she supported TPP. Now she's come out against it. Potentially that's evidence that Sanders has been able to push her to the left. But if we end up with a Trump versus Hillary contest in the general election, potentially we might not hear a lot about trade. They might both be anti-TPP, pro-protection, or ironically, we might get the Republican candidate, Trump, as the protectionist, picking on Hillary, fighting against Hillary and saying, look, she used to be for TPP. She used to be in favor of this big trade agreement that Obama negotiated. You should vote against her for that reason. So maybe we see no debate over trade, both candidates taking a protectionist position, or ironically, we see the Republican being the protectionist and the Democrat being the free trader. But either way, it's not great for trade, is it? Either way, it's not great. Okay, Peter. That's a great analysis. I'm trying to think, like, what I can add to it. Um, I I guess where I would end is, you know, what I would say is where you ended, I think it will be, if it were Trump and Hillary, it's in Trump's interest to play this issue very hard mm-hmm. um, because what it will tap into is um, not only divisions inside the Democratic Party over, over trade matters, um, but it will be a vehicle for him to underscore his commitment to doing something for blue-collar workers in the United States and that Hillary whether this is right or wrong doesn't really matter, but that Hillary has not been a champion of the working class, and that the Clinton administration, you know, the first that Bill Clinton supported NAFTA, it's a way to remind voters that Bill Clinton supported NAFTA, that Bill Clinton supported uh, the PNTR, China's ascension into the World Trade Organization, and Trump has made China and the raw deal the United States is getting with China, a very big issue in the campaign. So I think what he would be likely to do is to harness that, to tap it, but to maybe kind of broaden its appeal, to have it kind of intersect with the kinds of issues. um, Steve brought up that piece by Tom Edsel in the Times today, which is great. This is not a plug for the Times. But it's it's a great piece on these kind of fundamental issues about wage stagnation and economic inequality and the trade issue plays into that. So I think that that Trump would kind of try to close that circle there. Yeah, um, this issue is particularly concerning to me as somebody who has a pretty classically liberal view on economics. Uh, We're seeing this, and this is also where I think the word isolationism really does come into play, even more so than foreign policy. Because in the States right now, we're seeing two big brands of trade isolationism. You're seeing the Sanders camp, which is really anti-globalization. They don't like the financial market. They don't like the idea of jobs going overseas. And then on the Trump side, uh, you have uh, an isolationist that doesn't want people coming in to take jobs. They're anti-immigration. They don't want people coming here to create opportunity. The opportunity should only be for Americans. And then on top of that, Trump has also added to his rhetoric, um, you know, being anti-trade, potentially creating tariffs and trade embargoes with places like China, places like Mexico. I mean, truly ludicrous if you actually want to keep the American economy going. Uh, And it's very depressing to me that both 
sides, especially the Republican Party, which doesn't really have a huge history of doing this, at least not recently, uh, have come out so anti-trade. And neither group is talking about the changes that could be made within the country to keep business in the United States. You don't have to literally stop them from leaving. There are things you can do and incentives you can provide to keep businesses and jobs within the United States. But that's not what they're talking about. They're talking about being very protectionist implementing all kinds of legislation that's going to harm the economy. Uh, it's very worrying. It's an anti-liberal election. And that's uh, I mean, I would definitely argue that. I don't, I don't want to get into a big debate, yeah, but yes, yeah. <laughs> I would well, definitely argue that. Hayek and uh, Lionel Robbins that's and many right. other people, uh, Steve. Just quickly, the thing that bothered me the most was Clinton's flip-flop on TTIP yeah. and TTP. Mm-hmm. I mean, on trade, you can argue that. But what bothered me more was it undermined the sense that she actually has things she believes in. And that's the kind of thing Trump will hit. It's the kind of thing Sanders will hit. She's always had trouble with, you know, declining union membership. Mm -hmm. Um, And the irony of TTP is it's really intended to limit China's options. It's not to (laughs) enhance them. I details, mean, details. Yeah, yeah. but I mean, I mean, the whole point of it was to create a set of rules that China would have to go along with. And so, you know, it's just another indication that um, you, politics is um, whatever seems to make sense at the time. Mm-hmm. Get in. Yeah, I was initially shocked by that, but now I'm prepared to cut her some slack, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was, it, was a, not, it was actually something she championed. You know, yeah. She was the champion of the pivot. Mm-hmm. The TPP is central to that. But on the other hand, you know, if, it's, if it's a very close fight with Donald Trump and if that's what you need to do to keep him out, you know, fine, as far as I'm concerned. But on the protectionist stuff, I mean, I think... It's very. Inter- I mean, Trump said, I think, yesterday that he would force Apple to make iPhones in the United States. Uh, you know, <laughs> How much would they be then? Close down Foxconn. In, but the, these are things, exactly, you get a laugh here, and it is laughable, but it probably sounds kind of sensible to people who think, well, you know, why have all these manufacturing jobs gone, you know, and if he can bring them back, great. Mm. And just a last one on the, on the NAFTA thing. I, I, it made me think, you know, of course, that was one of the first things Clinton did. Yeah. It was, uh, I think, 93... And it was a kind of post-Cold War opening up. Globalization sort of accelerated after the end of the Cold War. And made, maybe if we're now in this backlash against Mexico and build the war phase, we're at the end of a 25-year phase uh, of the post-Berlin Wall phase when globalization was really in the ascendancy. We all felt kind of optimistic about the West's ability to spread its economic system and to benefit, to create systems of mutual benefit. And confidence in that seems to have broken down in the West. And that's, I think, maybe uh, where, we're, where we're at. And if America doesn't lead on free trade, then free trade goes, does it not? I mean, is that, is that too crude? Hegemonic yeah. leader, you need a leader without that leader providing the pressure. Well, the agreements are still in place, but obviously if you do start doing things like Trump suggests over, over the iPhone, yeah, then, then the, you're ripping up the WTO agreements and nobody else is going to put them in place. Yeah. Did you want to come back on that one, Stephanie? Oh, I would just absolutely agree. If we see the U.S. taking a step towards protectionism, we'll see retaliation yeah. and we'll get into this death spiral that we saw in the 1930s when we got this Smoot-Hawley tariff and this huge level of protection. Given some of the problems we're facing in Europe at the moment and all the difficulties we're facing here, you could, you could get a perfect storm. It's not impossible by yeah. any stretch of the imagination. Right, I'm going to take my 
very last question, which is almost impossible, but I'm going to try it. I, the question is, what should you be looking for in the weeks ahead? Uh, I think a very large drink. But um, <laughs> I suppose I, I, I'll ask a more direct question. Yeah. Where do you think this election is really going to go then? Let's, let's put it like that. And uh, I'm going to start with Peter on this one. Where are we going? We've got, the, we got a few more primaries to come. Right. Where are we going to go through those and beyond? And then I'll open it up to guys up there. Well, there's a lot of different things you could say. I'm actually I'm going to focus on a few things. I mean, this is, it's a great question. And so there are a few things that are, are narrow, but they're, and they're not on people's radar, and I think they should be on people's radar. So one of them is I'll be looking to see what happens to John Kasich in the next couple of weeks. Um, He's, I, I have said for a long time, I still believe this, he's the sleeper on the Republican side. He needed all of the other candidates to knock themselves out. And the question is whether or not he can, uh, he can win in Michigan or do very well in Michigan and then in Ohio. I, I, re, I bring him up because I think that what we're going to see going forward in the kind of Republican establishment is the game is going to become, you know, to use like an American football analogy, like prevent defense. So the issue is going to become trying to keep Trump away from the magic delegate you know, number to win the nomination. And so you have to look at uh, individuals like a Kasich that might be able to pick up a few pivotal states, Ohio being one of them. That's one thing. The other thing that people aren't talking about, but I think they should be, is where Lizzie Warren is. So whether Elizabeth Warren, when, if and when, she decides to endorse Hillary Clinton. Because it will matter a lot in terms of bringing the Sanders end of the spectrum and inside the party, the Sanders wing, on board. But I don't expect her to do it anytime soon because the smart move for her is to keep Hillary's feet to the fire. She needs that endorsement. That's a really valuable endorsement. And uh, it will play well with the millennials where Hillary has a lot of trouble. Um, you know, I mean, just shown in primary after primary. It was on display again, again yesterday. And then the third thing that people aren't talking about, but I think that we're going to hear more of it, I mean, is, you know, what are the downstream Republicans? What do they say? These are people that are going to be potentially on a Trump like the Trump ticket, the Trump train, you know, Republicans that, you know, what are they going to do? Are they going to, you know, align with Trump or are they going to try to bolt and put distance between themselves? And we see this going on right now with Mitch McConnell on the one side, you know, and Jeff Sessions on the other. These guys have to, I mean, these politicians have to make choices coming up and it'll be really interesting to see what happens. Right. You know, if Trump had the option to actually put his name on the side of a train, I'm positive he would create the Trump train. Yeah, positive. Yes, yeah, yeah, that, that will exist. Um, the Trump. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, behave, yeah. behave, behave. Um, well, 
Um, I don't like John to use Oliver. the word inevitable because it's a, it's a big word. Uh, it's a very committed word. Um, you know, if the Republican establishment were to truly play its cards right and just take full control over the rest of the candidates running against Trump right now, even if they couldn't muster up enough delegates to get behind one candidate, they could potentially keep delegates away from Trump, um, which would be an interesting and very radical tactic. I'm not sure it would work, but there's a small chance that we could see Trump struggle to get to the number that he needs to be the nominee. That being said, my best bet is that come this fall, you will have a former elitist New York senator running against an elitist New York businessman, uh, and both who um, have serious problems telling the truth. And uh, I'm really worried for the American people because... People are so angry, and politicians are so willing to feed into that fear and into that hatred on both sides right now. Um, I know that Clinton talked about love and kindness last night, and I know that Trump is actually lightening up on some of his really ugly rhetoric. But when push comes to shove, they're saying what they need to say. A lot of it's dangerous. A lot of it's illiberal. And uh, I'm really disappointed and, and worried come November 2016. Steve? Um, just to say, I, I don't put Hillary in the same class of lying as Trump. Oh, that's um, the, probably the only area I, did, I do put them in the same okay. class. <laughs> right. Well, um, I th- am very eager to see... Unfortunately, Rubio's disappointed the Republicans. He just hasn't done as well as they hoped he would. And so now the question is, much as you say, what are they going to do? Can they do anything? The other thing I'm very interested in seeing is um, you have, as I said, these two old candidates, both from New York, which are quite right, and Americans in general don't like New York. What will their vice presidential choices be? I mean, could Hillary convince Elizabeth Warren to run with her or somebody like her? you know, which would be interesting or maybe not. And Trump, I I don't know, maybe he'd get Leo DiCaprio. (laughs) (laughs) It would be interesting. Or Julia Roberts. I I don't know. (laughs) Hugh Grant, if he was American. (laughs) That's too dangerous. Too dangerous, yeah. Uh, Gideon. God, I follow that. That's a, yeah. My mind's still boggling you, from that. But, that's <laughs> not you, hasn't it? No, I mean, I think you know, this question we've all touched upon is how does the Republican Party react to this? And it, mm. it's a very interesting political, tactical question, but it's also a moral question, you know, that all these people, senators, congressmen, at least half of them, I hope, two-thirds, you know, are appalled by the mm. things that Trump says. And do they say, well, my career's at stake, and, you know, I've put a lot of years into this, and... Trump's, uh, you know, he's, he's quite close to Hillary, might even win. Uh, maybe I should get with the program. Uh, or do they actually say, you know, I can't put up with this and I'm walking out of the party? Uh, I suspect most of them will make the careerist decision, actually. Like the uh, Labour Party? Yeah. Uh, they'll, they'll try and outlast him. They'll come up with reasons. But as I say, it's an interesting mm-hmm. moral dilemma as much mm-hmm. as a political dilemma. Just on the pure politics... Uh, I think it'd be really interesting to see what Michael Bloomberg does. I mean, clearly, he's been floating this idea that he'll run. I think it would be an act of grotesque egotism if he were to run, because I think it would make it more likely that Trump would win. Mm -hmm. Because rather than... I mean, his people would say, well, he's... You know, he'll take votes from the Republicans, would be Republicans. But I think if the election breaks down into establishment versus anti-establishment with Hillary 
as the establishment candidate, he would split the establishment vote and he might make Trump president. But he's clearly thinking about it. I, mean, I bumped into his pollster in New York who was you know, talking up his chances and got quite offended when I said it would be irresponsible. <laughs> you're, you're, you're allowed to say that. You're a Brit. Yeah. You can get away with anything. Yeah. Yeah. Stephanie. Uh, so I'm most excited to see a contested convention. I think that Trump is unlikely to get the number of delegates he needs uh, to secure the nomination. I think we will go into a contested convention. As someone who studies politics, I think it would be fascinating. We haven't (laughs) seen one since 1976 and before that, 1950s. Mm -hmm. So it would be really fascinating to watch. And I'm not convinced that people, other Republicans, aren't staying in just to keep the delegates away from Trump. It's very hard for Trump to get the number of delegates he needs now to win the nomination outright. So going to a contested convention, watching the internal dynamics of the party, right. I look forward to watching. Okay, well, <laughs> we, end, we end on a great note of doubt. That's wonderful. <laughs> uh, now we're going to open it up, I think, uh, for participation questions from the audience. About 37 hands just went up. Uh, I'll take a couple at a time, and then let's start over here. Who, who, who's had a hand up over here? Please stick your hand up. I can't see not hands up. Uh, start with the gentleman here and the lady here in the middle. Okay, one, and then it's the lady here. Can you just pass along? I'll take two at a time, and then we'll do a couple more. Yeah, please. Thank you. Quick so, and sharp. Okay, very sharp. Many, many years ago, people thought that the concept of Ronald Reagan as president was completely wacky. Is the concept of President Trump really so awful? Right, okay. From Reagan to Trump. Yeah, please. We talked about African-American voters. We talked about um, Hispanic voters. I'm interested to hear the panelists' thoughts from a gender dynamic angle. Gender dynamic. Okay, I'll, t- I'll take a couple more because we've had a lot of stuff. Yeah, gentleman here. Thank you very I'll much. I'll take one more over there. Take, find somebody over there. Gentleman over there, quickly. Yeah, please, right. Thank you. Um, in 2012, the conventional wisdom was that the Republican Party didn't reach out beyond the essentially the white vote. Can Trump succeed in a general election where Romney failed, given that he seems to be rude to practically every ethnic minority, and he's hardly the flavour of the Republican establishment either. Very good. And there was another one over here. Yeah, please. Uh, I don't often like to listen too much to what Alabama congressmen say, but they put forward this thought about um, actually um, implosion and civil fighting amongst the uh, Republicans wasn't actually going to happen because there's one thing which is far stronger, which is that they all cannot stand Hillary Clinton. So actually, will they just bypass a civil conflict because their vehement hatred is far stronger? Well, as you ended a question on Clinton, I'd better, better ask you to answer no. it, I suppose, yeah? Everyone have a go at what they want to have a go at, then we move on as quickly as possible, yeah. yeah. Why not? <laughs> it's an open discussion. We don't want a formalistic kind of yeah. go down yeah. the whole line. Yeah, um, I, I, I agree with what was previously said. I think we'll see more Republicans fall into line than I would personally like to see. Um, but I know that for people who definitely lean to the right like me, um, I really don't like Hillary Clinton. I'd be very disappointed to see her be the first female president. I don't think that she represents politically or personally what I want, so I put gender aside. That being said, um, if it were between Trump and Hillary, I know my support's not going to Trump. So the question is, do I vote for their party? Well, precisely. You know, so so what do I do? So I I think you might see a lot of Republicans sit home. Yep. Um, 
It seems to be the case that every time Trump offends billions of people who are a minority in the states, but, you know, the majority in many, many other countries, he does better. And oftentimes he does better with the minority that he's insulted. I mean, <laughs> look at the exit polls coming out of Super Tuesday, coming out of South Carolina. He's winning Hispanics, African Americans. He's winning women. He's winning college-educated people across the board. In a general election, I think that African-American vote still definitely swings to the Democrats. But George W. Bush did well with Hispanics. And we can't overlook the fact that there will be many Hispanics who don't think Trump's talking about them. He thinks he's talking about the people who are threatening their jobs, or at least in their perspective might be threatening their jobs when they come in. Um, so that I, I think those dynamics will be shook up. I don't think that Trump will be able to take them all away from the Democrats. But if you're angry, you're angry. Woman man, black, white, and they seem to like Trump. Um, and uh, the last point I would make about Reagan um, is that, yes, he was a B-list actor, but then he has this little period that we often forget where he was a two-term governor California. Of, of California, one of the biggest states in the country. Um, he was a very successful politician and a B-list actor. Um, Trump is missing one of those things. But that... <laughs> and some people would say he ended the Cold War, but there we go. Uh, Steve? Um, I'm very struck, as I think many people have been, at the fight among generations of women about Hillary Clinton. I mean, that fascinated me, you know, because when Madeleine Albright has to apologize, it's, it's creepy, frankly. Um, and um, I'm very struck and pleased if it's really true that young women in America feel that gender isn't really that important anymore, that they're doing well enough, and that it's not the most important issue on which they vote. If it's true, and I hope it's true, that's a great success for the American society, I would say. And then on Reagan, you, you know, it is true we elected uh, an actor with a nice face and a good style and a couple very simple ideas, so why not a reality show host. I mean, it's not uncommon. Um, I'd hate to see it, um, because Reagan at least had around him people like Jim, Jim, Jim Baker and some really smart people and knew he needed them, while Trump seems to feel... I mean, I don't know who's around Trump. Corey Lewandowski. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really good question you asked about Reagan. I mean, because I think you're asking not just about their comparative backgrounds, but also about the reaction, and are we all working ourselves up into a furore and we'll kind of get used to it. Uh, and it's, I've thought about this because it is true. If you look, go back, people were comparing you know, Reagan to a Nazi, and in, in Europe the reaction was, was quite uh, hysterical when he came in. Um, on the other hand, I do think Trump is different. I mean, partly because of the things he's prepared to say, and his, the, the sort of thuggish character that he brings to politics. Reagan, for all, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people thought he was simple-minded, but he was not uh, uncivil, on the contrary. He was a very kind mm. of uh, civil person. Uh, he didn't race bait. I mean, maybe a bit of dog whistle stuff, but not remotely in the same uh, league as what Trump is doing. And, you know, I used to think this whole thing about the, role, the president as role model was a bit kind of American and sappy and so on. I didn't take it that seriously, but actually... The idea that Trump can behave in the way that he has behaved uh, 
and that people will vote for him and that he becomes the most successful person in America. What kind of message does that send out about the way people should behave in, in normal life? I think it's really slightly horrifying. It does introduce this sort of thuggish tone and bra- bragging tone into politics, which I think is objectionable. Just on the gender thing, I, I, it's just uh, it reminded me I've, I've lost my journalistic instinct through being a columnist too long because I was actually in the crowd in about two foot from Madeleine Albright when she said this thing. And I thought, oh, that's a bit off, you know, and then didn't think to file or anything. And, uh, <laughs> and of course, it then became a huge story. Yeah. Um, but the interesting thing about it was that actually it was only the most extreme expression of what a number of women speaking before Hillary took to the stage had said. Mm. And she didn't, Hillary Clinton herself did not echo that. But she sort of stood there with a slightly fixed grin while everybody said it. So clearly it was an authorised message. Um, which, you know, Albright, she was uh, ad-libbing, so she, she overdid it. Um, and also people don't get irony when it's written down. I mean, she was kind of joking, sort mm. of. Um, but, 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 yeah, that message didn't, didn't go down well. I, th- I think in a way it was, in a funny way, it was a sort of anti-feminist message because it told people, you know, don't even think, you know, you, you, you just uh, sort of fall in line and people didn't like it. Mm. Stephanie, any thoughts? So Reagan engendered a a contested convention, so maybe that's a nice analogy. On the gender question, I am so frustrated that the younger women are not voting for Hillary, and I I don't have your sunny disposition, but maybe I'm too old. I I don't know, maybe that's not my generation. Um, But we know there's a lot of women independents, and so potentially they break for Hillary. My fear is that if trade or globalization becomes a political part of this campaign, we know women are much more protectionist than men, even controlling for their education level, their occupation, their industry of employment. So my fear is that if trade becomes politicized, if Trump goes after Hillary about trade, that these independent women might end up breaking for him. But it's hard to see what's going to happen right now. But I am frustrated by this division, this cleavage we see across the generations for women supporting Hillary. So, uh, so quickly, on the, on the question about... Um, can somebody win with only the white vote? If Trump is the candidate, we're going to have a test of that proposition, I think, um, in the United States, because I don't think Hispanics are going to come out for him, and African Americans certainly are not going to come out for him. The important thing, I think, to keep in mind there is that Hillary does not poll well among white males, and she, they lag. Uh, I mean, that's part of Sanders' strength, and this actually doesn't even have to do with age group. Um, So, you know, Trump will go hard after them, and, you know, it ends up being, if you go down that path, it's a question about who can get their base out, who can get their voters out. And I I really think this is very, it could shape up as a kind of base election in more ways than one, where you're really playing to the hardcore base, very polarizing. So that's one thing. I love the Reagan uh, analogy because I use it myself. Um, and I, I think it works even with these qualifiers in mind. I, I think it works for two reasons. One is I, I don't think you want to be thinking about 1980. You want to be thinking about 1976 when it was, a, it was an insurgency against the establishment. Um, and he was ridiculed. Uh, and he was taking positions that that many people thought were crazy, like on China, for example, at the time. Uh, he was pushing ag- back against his own party on, on foreign policy, on domestic policy. And the thing is, is he was denied. He was denied at the convention. Why was he denied? He came up just short 
of the number of delegates that he needed, and there was a lot of backroom dealing. And I think just to go to this point about, you know, if it's a brokered convention, and it could be, if the Republicans go to somebody who has not polled votes out in the primaries, I think all hell will break loose inside the party if they try to deny deny Trump. So I think they're over a barrel, actually. By the way, just as a quick aside, after President Reagan was did become president, uh, the rhetoric he employed generated the largest peace movement that Europe had known for about 30 years right. and created one of the great splits in the transatlantic relationship. And so although things came well in the end for those first two to three years, the first term, it was pretty tough going, you know. So think about that. Anyway, where's the microphone? I've lost my mic, guys. Hi. Right. Uh, who wants to come up here? Anybody up there? Try and get a gender balance. Uh, lady here, please. Yeah? Come, go left, go left, go left. Yes, sir. Woman here, yeah, please. Yeah, sorry. And the gentleman here with a very extended right hand called Rory Kinane from Chatham House. And uh, we'll take those two first. I'm going to go as fast as I can. Please. Thank you. Um, I have a question for Peter Trubowitz. You mentioned the Kagan article from the Washington Post. Kagan was very blunt in his criticism of the GOP, arguing that it's really a failure of the Republican Party over the past eight years and their policy of you know, digging in and trenches and opposing everything Obama did that made Trump great. So I mean, how far is Trump's success really a crisis of conservatism in the U.S. more broadly and not just a product of anger in the general electorate? Okay, crisis of conservatism over there. Uh, what really worries me at the moment is with Trump, we have really little idea of what he's going to do. But even with Clinton, we almost have no idea of what she's going to achieve. Even if she smashes him to pieces, wins back the Senate, she won't win the House. And almost no one is talking about what would Hillary do. You know, we're all just so focused on the horse race at the moment. No one's talking about the next four years of American politics. And it's a pretty important time to get it right at the moment. I've got one more. I've got one here, lady, lady here, and one, somebody over here. People got their hand up. Just, just behind you. Okay, great. Thank you. Yes, uh, we, uh, my yeah, question. Yeah. yeah, my question is for Professor Rickard, and it's regarding the November election uh, in twelve, and and recently we've seen red state, blue state, swing state. Is this what you're seeing now? Are we going to have another election that really is going to focus on the voters in the swing states? And how do you see this fracturing of the Republican Party? And, you know, will the Democrats coalesce around the likely uh, candidacy of Hillary Clinton? Thank you. Right. Uh, and one last one over here. Where are you? Thank you. Um, we've oh, only yes. talked about one election so far tonight. What should we look out for and expect from the congressional elections? Congressional elections. Okay. Who wants? Peter, why don't you begin? Because you went last last time. Okay, I want to steal the question for Stephanie. So um, can't do that, but yeah, you're going to no, do no, it no, anyway. It's a, it, it's a great question, and, and I, I wanted to say this in response to uh, to the last question uh, about white voters too, because I think they speak to each other. If it's if it's Trump and it's it's Clinton, this is going to be a fight over uh, a few states, a handful of states. Ohio is going to be pivotal. Maybe five. Five's the number everybody talks about. If, he's, if Clinton is up against Trump, she's going to pick somebody like Tim Kaine to be her VP. And Kaine, from, a senator from uh, Virginia, young, white, uh, liberal, um, um, will, will you know, really resonate, I think, with, with a lot of 
Democratic voters, but also kind of those voters to the extent that they exist. This is a whole other story that exists in the middle that for her to pick up and to try to pick up a, a couple pivotal states like like Virginia. Just very quickly on the question of like Kagan and the crisis of conservatism. I, you know, the way I read Kagan's piece is, oh, my God, what have we created? Um, and what have we as neoconservatives lent ourselves to? And, um, you know, that, uh, that they have supported a lot of divide and conquer strategies on the Republican side for many, many years. Um, and, uh, and, and I think it's kind of like the chickens have come home to roost. So it, I, I see it as, yes, it's a critique of kind of conservatism in general, but it's also a recognition of the kinds of divisions that they've played on. I know Kate is going to disagree with this. The divisions, that, the social divisions that they've, they've played on, um, you know, have come back to haunt them. Um, Why don't we come down the line? Yes, Stephanie. Uh, I think the Democrats will absolutely coalesce around Clinton. I think that she has used the primary season very smartly. We were, it was good that she didn't have uh, a coronation, that she faced competition, because we can see her getting smarter, being more strategic, getting tougher. She's going to use that exit polling data to say, I need to shore up my support amongst millennials. I need to shore up my support amongst the Hispanics. I need to shore up my support amongst unions. So she'll use that going into a general election to make a strategic VP pick, to sort of plan the campaign. So the swing states that we saw before are still going to be swing states. We might see slightly different strategies. But I think we might see more states coming into play because we have that fractured Republican side. So I think that we might see some red states turn a little bit more purple and potentially because we have these new divisions within the Republican Party. Yeah. Yeah, I'll take the the Hillary question. Um, I mean, I think that on one level she would be a continuity candidate. She um, served in the Obama administration. I think on foreign policy there might be a little bit of a division because she, you know, through strategic links or uh, leaks or unstrategic ones, we know that she disagreed with Obama on Syria, that, uh, that on Libya she was the advocate for intervention when he was nervous about it correctly, uh, and that uh, she was arguing for a tougher line on Syria. So I think she is a little bit more hawkish. However, I think that then brings in the second question is, I, what will she have learned from the campaign if she gets through it and she's president? What, I think she's learning about the United States and where it's at as she goes. Um, and I think that some of her natural interventionism, because she is an establishment candidate, and that's the sort of establishment position, may have been tempered by finding that actually most of the other candidates are not uh, sensing that that's what the voters want. Um, And I think that also a big part of her job will be to try to figure out where is all this anger coming from? What can I do to alleviate it? Um, I think that one of the themes and the interesting themes to come out of the campaign is this rage against Wall Street, and it's one of her vulnerabilities. It's something Sanders has used against her. Uh, but I think that she would probably try to, uh, dep- you know, it depends how cynical are you about her relationship with her donors, but I think that they would start doing things on carried interest, taxation of hedge funds, that, that kind of stuff. I think another theme, I mean, uh, certainly it was interesting... You know, I didn't spend that long on the primary trail, but in New Hampshire, the extent to which all the candidates were talking about student debt, 
uh, it's obviously a huge burden, and it's one of these things that I think is taking hope away from people that they come out of college with big, big financial. Sorry about this, big financial debts. But it's uh, it's even worse in the U.S. and uh, and not the sense that these the jobs that they were hoping for were there, and that people feel like they're starting their careers, you know, shackled. Uh, so I think she'll have to try and do something about that as well. Steve, um, the other thing, she's more pro-Israel than Obama, and. Trump is very popular in Israel, so that would be an interesting yeah. line. I mean, because Jews vote, let's be honest, and they vote in big states, and it would be very interesting to see where that goes. Well, Trump hasn't said that he'd move the capital of Jerusalem, which I think is he not the only one. Yeah, I know. <laughs> It'll never happen. Um, the other thing I would say is she has a choice in front of her She's that they're already debating if it is Trump, which is what tenor her campaign will have. I mean, does she act like the normal adult candidate and, and, and not respond no. in the trenches, or does she get down and dirty? And if she does get down and dirty, who does it for her? And how, how is she going to handle debates where Trump is really going to try to get under her skin? Um, and it's not that hard to get under her skin, by the way. So I think it's, that part will be very interesting to me. Mm -hmm. um, really quickly to answer the question on the Senate, um, I think that if Hillary Clinton takes the White House, it will be a divided Congress. Uh, the Republicans will almost certainly keep the House regardless of what happens. But if Hillary Clinton becomes president, the Democrats will almost certainly take the Senate. You now have the Senate leader, Mitch McConnell, who's a Republican, saying that if Trump is the nominee, he uh, is going to potentially encourage senators to run anti-Trump campaigns if it means saving their own seat. So we have no idea how that will actually pan out. But um, you're either looking at a divided House with a Democrat uh, uh, or you're looking potentially at a uh, Republican House and Oval Office. Um, to go back to the point about whether or not conservatives are to blame for Trump and to come back a bit on what you said, um, as a disclaimer, I am, I'm personally more socially liberal than I think your average mainstream Republican. Um, but I can sympathize somewhat with their perspective. Um, I do think they're very angry at their own leaders because they have been waiting for a conservative leader to come along and stand up to the liberal elite and say, look, just because I'm pro-life doesn't mean I'm sexist. And just because I want to have a legitimate conversation about immigration doesn't mean I'm racist. And I want to get rid of no platforming on campuses because they tend to target young conservatives. They don't target young liberals. Um, and even though I don't necessarily agree with all their positions and I like to fight them you know, vehemently, um, I understand why they, they, want, they are really, in their minds, defending the ability to speak freely without having these terrible words thrown at you. I think it's a frustration with the liberal elite, but at the end of the day, they don't feel like any conservative, especially in the past eight years, has stood up and represented them. And uh, Donald Trump is the first one, I guess, to come along and make them feel safer, to make them feel like, well, he's saying radical things and he's re-justifying my position. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the gentleman had his hand up here. Yeah, down, please. Um, and come down, come down, come down, dear boy. Find somebody on the way down. Yeah, the person there. There. It's great. It's good. Here we go. The, sorry. Yeah, please, yeah. yeah. So the, 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 um, the question about... Um, President Trump and, and America's relations with the Muslim world 
now becomes a very, very immediate serious issue. And I think one of my, so my question to you is, what are those implications in that kind of scenario? And I think also not just internationally, domestically, we've, we've seen a sharp increase in attacks on Muslim organizations in the last few weeks as the rhetoric is also ramping up. So what are your thoughts on that? Domestic and, and post up there, yeah, please. Um, just on um, hello, just on Donald Trump. Um, rhetoric aside, I mean, his, some of his rhetorics are quite disturbing. But what is also quite interesting is that his rhetorics, uh, just over his life, hasn't been very consistent. And I was just wondering. Um, I mean, my impression of Hillary Clinton, and this might be a bit wrong, but um, if you look at her life, I mean, she's always wanted to change things. I mean, that's what motivates her to get into politics. Um, what do you think motivates Donald Trump to be running for presidency? <laughs> a bit of psychology. Why don't we just go along the... Go, just go along. Yeah, and uh, as a person down here, please. Yeah, yeah, the RNC. We'll take those four. Thanks for that. Uh, over there and then down here. Yep. Um, I was just wondering how the Republican Party repairs its relationship with its base because through their support of an anti-establishment candidate in Trump, um, they've clearly sent the message that they don't trust Republican Party elites to dictate the rhetoric and the policies that they in, generally, in general support. Okay. And um, I just wanted to ask a question about turnout. Um, do you feel that a lot of Americans are going to feel that neither... Clinton nor Trump is the kind of candidate that they want to vote for. And if that is the case, where will they place their, their anger or their, their hopes and their hope for change? Okay, a lot of questions there. Steve, I'm going to start with you because you clearly are inside the mind of Donald Trump. Mm. Um, <laughs> you seem so to have sorry. that kind of sense. Yes. Uh, empathy, I think we call it. Yeah, that's right. So what, what, is motivating, <laughs> what is motivating the great man? You know, Trumps just want to have fun. Trump. <laughs> Good. That was not prepared, by the way. That was, that was well rehearsed, obviously. Now, yeah. I, do, I do think he's in it partly... I mean, he's clearly a narcissist, and he's in it for the, for the lark of it. And, you know, maybe he does want to put the Trump White House in gold, with gold taps and so on. No, I mean, clearly he started this, I think, with no real idea of how far it was going to go. And I think he's actually been surprised by the way the party has collapsed in, in front of him. I mean, sometimes I think, it's not really a direct answer to a question, but this reminds me a little bit of the 60s, which I remember very well, in the sense that there seems to be a cultural something going on and our American bard, Bob Dylan, said, there's something going on here, but you don't know what it is, do you, Mr. Jones? And I feel a bit like Mr. Jones. Should <laughs> we think, sing that together now? Yeah, no, let's, no, 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 let's do that. I mean, it's the anger, it's, it's what Gideon said, which I think is very important, which is a shift away from post-Cold War globalization, which is everywhere, and a very strong sense, particularly in Anglo-American societies like this one and my own that inequality has become disgusting. It's revolting. And people feel it and they see it and it's corporate greed and they're very angry about it. Um, and I think that's amazingly enough Trump is 
who you would think represents this is somehow um, saying, I'm a rich man, I did it on my own, um, I'm my own guy, I'm not beholden. Um, uh, Americans like rich people, by the way. They don't resent them. They actually want to be rich people. Um, so I, I think all this is really going on. I mean, the last thing I would say in answer to, to your question, sir, about the Muslim world is that I think the West is having a real problem. I mean, I was in France before coming to Britain. Um, there are problems of, in, of integration, of identity, of, of not culture wars, but certainly culture clash. And in a way, it's sad in America because I think of, of Muslim-American relations as actually pretty good. Um, and, you know, it's been pretty good so far, even after the bump of 9-11, things kind of calmed down a bit. So I'm very worried about it myself, I mean, mostly within my own society. Gideon, why don't you move along? Yeah, I mean, I'll answer that one as well. I mean, I think the, uh, you know, the the, the famous statement about banning all Muslims, he left himself on a it's a massive get-out clause, you know, until we've worked out what's going on. Uh, and so presumably you can say, well, we've worked out what's going on, so, <laughs> so it's, it's fine. Um, but I, on the other hand, I did think, you know, when I was flying in uh, last to the States from a you know, British flight, and there were, you know, Muslims, women, women in headscarves with UK passports, you know, it's kind of unimaginable that they'd say, well, presumably they'd have said at Heathrow, you can't get on the plane. It's, it's so bizarre. Uh, I can't believe... Well, you know, I, I actually, all bets are off. I, I, I find it hard to believe that, that he would go ahead with that. I think he would take the, the get-out clause. But obviously, all that sort of uh, poison has been dripped into the system, and that's, that's very dangerous. Mm. Um, I think in his relations with the Muslim world, though, he would go back to a very kind of crude form of realism. He would, he, I mean, he said we should have embraced Assad. He would, he'll love Sisi in Egypt. He'll go for strongmen, regional strongmen. He'll keep the place quiet. Uh, that's, that'll be his model. And, you know, so in that sense, he may have working relationships with a bunch of generals in the Arab world. I think that's what he'd be looking for. And Putin for. as well? Oh, yeah. I think absolutely. And Xi Jinping. I think you'd, you'd have the world pretty quickly carved up into spheres of influence where he would say, you know, fine, you know, I don't object to, to Russians. He said, he said, I don't mind what the Russians are doing in Syria. We should be with them. And, uh, you know, if he says... Uh, why the hell are we defending the Japanese when you know, they seem to want to sell us televisions? It doesn't make sense. Uh, um, that's, I, I, that's strategic I, thinking. I think, I think he would quite quickly say, look, you know, and, and the trouble is it sort of makes... I don't think it's obviously ridiculous either, you know, if you're a realist. I can see it's in Japan's interest that we defend the Senkaku Islands. Why is it in America's interest? That actually is quite a good question. There are, there are good answers to it as well, but he wouldn't go there. Mm. So I think he would say... Um, you know, fine. If China's going to dominate East Asia, it's not our problem, provided that they don't disrupt our economy. It'd be interesting to see who becomes his foreign policy oh, Are we, we going to do like a two-finger thing? Or? Yeah, yeah, come sure on, now, come on. We're going along. We're moving along. We're moving along. We're moving along. I can wait, but I, that's, it's just a really interesting right. point here. So, uh, I mean, I want to come to the issue that was raised about the Republican base, but if you just... I thought what Gideon just raised is, is, is interesting because you could see how Trump, so let's imagine that Trump was thinking strategically, right? So, about Asia. I mean, the deal he could cut, right, he could cut with the Chinese is 
you do something for us on trade. I want to look good at home on trade. So you make concessions, right, to us on trade. And I'll tell you what, I'll give you a sphere of influence. We'll pull back. We're going to pull back with respect to Japan and South Korea. I mean, you could easily see how he could put two strains of thought together. I'm not saying he could necessarily get that, like, you know, American, Congress to buy in and so forth, but it's, it's, it's plausible that somebody like that could go but down Peter, that path. the first thing that would happen is the, older, the, the major alliance system the United States has constructed in Asia since 1945 would collapse. Yeah. And secondly, American credibility would go down the proverbial swanny. Absolutely. So are you going to give him this advice or not? I'm not going to give him the advice, but yeah. we don't know who he's taking his we advice from. So, but you, you could see, it yeah. seems to me, if he's talking on the one hand sure. about kind of America shouldn't be so engaged in the region and at the same time they want slack on, yeah. on trade, you could put the two things together. Just, just come back to yeah, you. Yeah, I'm going to bring I mean, you you know, I think that what, more broadly we're seeing, maybe post the financial crisis and post yeah, the Iraq war, exactly. a questioning of establishment wisdom. Yes. Yeah. And what he is doing on these alliance systems is questioning establishment wisdom. He's saying, yeah, yeah. Hillary Clinton and everyone who advises her thinks what I'm saying is insane, but it kind mm. of makes sense to me, and it probably makes sense to a lot of American people. Why, you know, why do we have to have our credibility on the line all over the world and underwriting these security commitments and so on. And they're not, those aren't bad questions. Mm. I mean, I, I, don't get, I don't actually agree with his answers, but I think yeah. they're legitimate questions. And questions that really haven't been asked or yeah. put to the American people. So I think, I mean, it's really quite and interesting. And I, I think, again, yeah, sorry, last thing on this, but I mean, I think that... Yeah, he, are you, I, he, we know you guys he, are here. He's but. quite good at, <laughs> at channeling what seems like liberal com, here, common sure. sense, you know, Common sense on, well, why would we defend mm. the Senkaku Islands? Mm. It doesn't make mm. sense. Right. Why would we, you know, import all this stuff? Stephanie. I wanted to pick up on this question about rhetoric. So in this campaign, rhetoric has been exceptionally important. And it's not just because it's been so incendiary, but it's because we have a candidate that has no voting record in the legislature. Mm. Right? We have no idea what Trump really stands for. With Clinton, I can look at her voting record. I can look at what she did as Secretary of State. You know, with Cruz, with Rubio, I can see how they voted on uh, trade promotion authority. I can see what they did. But on the campaign trail, we know that they say all kinds of things. We know there's lots of cheap talk on the campaign trail. They're just saying this, 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 and this. And the, the reason why rhetoric's so important now is because we have a candidate with absolutely no voting record. No time in office. Okay, so it's just pure rhetoric because we don't know the Just record. those Playboy interviews. That you have. <laughs> How do you know there were interviews in Playboy, Peter? But anyway. Um, uh, <laughs> sorry about that. I couldn't resist it. Uh, I set myself up. I read the Okay, all right, let's, let's stop digging. Let's stop digging. Uh, Kate, please. Kate, <laughs> No judgment, no judgment. Um, well, um, I guess uh, to go to two questions about the first about the Republican base and, and how, it's, how it's going to make amends with the establishment. Um, if Donald Trump loses terribly to Hillary Clinton, then I think you will have a Barry Goldwater situation. I think that they will move on to the next person. Um, in four years' time, I don't think damage will be so bad that the Republican Party can't stay together. They'll move on to somebody new. It won't be Donald Trump. It might still be an anti-establishment figure. It might be someone with political experience. But we, we can't possibly know who they're going to be yet, but I think that they move on. If Donald Trump becomes president of the United States, I don't think you'll 
know the Republican Party anymore. I mean, it will look different. It will be different. I don't know if it will still be called that. I don't know if there will be fractions of it that split into completely different groups. Um, it would be such a radical win that I don't think the Republican base is the Republican base anymore. I, I don't think they make up. Um, and someone asked what motivates Donald Trump. Um, I don't want... I don't want to be too mean to Hillary Clinton tonight. I like. I mean, I always enjoy it, but like, Go okay, ahead. okay, okay. I mean, what motivates almost anybody running to be president of the United States? I think that both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton think they'd be good at the job. I genuinely think they think to themselves, "I will be good for the American people." But Hillary has been planning this since she was in the White House with Bill. She was clearly looking at him thinking, I can do better than that. Uh, I, don't, I don't necessarily disagree with that, but, uh, but you know, she, she has been posturing herself with, her, with being a senator and, and getting onto Barack Obama's team and being Secretary of State, the Clinton Foundation. All of it has been setting her up for this run. No question about it. She ran eight years ago, even before she was Secretary of State. She planned to be President of the United States. And it's very similar to Trump. It's the next step. What do you do once the entire world knows your name? What do you do once you have all that power and money? And both of them do. Uh, you, you take that next step. Now, I'm not saying they're just power-hungry and, and both sociopaths. I'm, I'm just saying that I think the motivation is very similar. Okay, we're coming pretty close to the end now. So I'm just going to take two more questions. Uh, let's take uh, a gentleman here with two hands up. <laughs> yeah, I, I think... Yeah, I think you deserve that one. And uh, the gentleman with the white shirt over there. Sorry, I had on two men, but that, that guy. Yeah, please. These are the last two. Make them quick. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so 1976 was a strange year, again, for the fact that it was the last time Texas went Democratic in a presidential election. Um, so I'm wondering, with the schism in the Republican Party, and if Hillary added somebody to her campaign like Julian Castro, do you think there's a chance that this election could be so realigning that Texas could go blue again? For either candidate, how much power and influence will they actually have? Will Clinton be like Obama fighting to get policies through? Uh, or conversely, if Trump gets in, will the Republicans disown him and stop him doing you know, any excesses? What areas of influence does a president have and where will they get stopped? Okay, philosophical questions, much as anything else. <laughs> Why don't we start down dissent and then move down? Yeah, sure. yeah please. Um, I, I don't know if Texas goes blue or not. It's a really interesting question. Some of the other panelists might have um, an interesting perspective on that. Um, but one state I've been very interested in that isn't Texas is Michigan, um, where Donald Trump is doing incredibly well. I mean, the big states like Texas are probably more interesting and exciting to talk about. But, um, you know, I think that this election will be contested with him or uh, – past more than five states. I think places like Michigan, even Pennsylvania, which are very, very purple, but have a strong working class, very white demographic, are places that Hillary Clinton might have to put money into and, and spend time there, which is going to detract from other areas. Now, if Trump has to contest Texas, then that kind of equals out, but I'm, I'm not sure he'd have to. Um, and uh, in terms of the power and influence in, in the Oval Office, I think if Hillary Clinton is president, yes, the gridlock will continue. Nothing will really change, but that's because the status quo hasn't really changed. Um, the Oval Office and Congress will be divided and will continue on with just absolutely horrific gridlock. Um, 
This is, I mean, under no circumstances do I want to see a President Trump, but at some point the only way we get rid of this gridlock is either to find a candidate that's going to unite us all, and I, I cannot possibly think of one, uh, or, or you're going to have to find someone to blow up the system, and then it's just you're building from scratch. I have no idea what happens. Um, but I think gridlock's here to stay for a while. Steve? Um, Texas, I'm not sure, but I think it's a it, it would be a big leap, but if she has the right Hispanic candidate, maybe. What I would say, I guess, to conclude is the presidency is important, and Americans know it's important, and a lot of Americans don't decide how to vote till the last week mm-hmm. before the vote, and if it feels like an important el- election, more of them will vote, and so I wouldn't worry too much or think too hard about what the polls say now. And, of course, the swing states will matter. I mean, what what happened last time, I expect will happen this time, that it will come down to five states or seven states, I don't really know, and all the money will go to the seven states and all the advertising and all the visits, and the rest of the country will be, as usual, ignored entirely. (laughs) But I really do caution you that uh, Americans do take the office seriously and they will vote seriously and a lot of them won't decide till the very end. Gideon. Yeah, I mean, just on the um, question of motivation, it just reminded me of an American friend of mine who once suggested that anyone who declared that they wanted to be president should be instantly disqualified on the grounds they're a megalomaniac. (laughs) But... um, but, yeah, I'll leave the Texas thing to Peter, who was at the University of Texas. But um, on the question of, you know, will gridlock stop either of them from doing anything? Well, obviously, the, the system is gridlocked. On the other hand, presidents get stuff done still. I mean, Obama got health care through. American foreign policy has been very different under Obama than it was under George W. Bush. George, you know, would we have had the Iraq war if, if, a, if a Democrat had been in the White House? Maybe, but maybe not. Um, so I wouldn't underestimate the powers of the presidency, particularly actually in foreign policy. Okay. On the Texas question, I wouldn't want to make a prediction about Texas, but I do think, as I said earlier, that some red states will become purple or more purple because of the, f- the fractures in the Republican Party. My own home state of Colorado went strongly for Sanders in the um, uh, primary. I suspect it will look a lot less purple. So we may even see purple states like Colorado turn more blue. Peter, you're the nominated Texan for the evening. Uh, yeah, I guess so. So, um, and I like that question um, because it comes from one of my students. It's not a plant. Hey. Um, so, I, I like the I other question that. too. But uh, so, uh, I mean, I, I I think just to go to that specifically, I think she only picks one of the Castro brothers if she's facing Cruz or Rubio or. I saw Bill Crystal is calling for a Cruz Rubio ticket, right, to try to take it away from, from Trump. Then I think she goes demographic. But if if um, if if she's facing Trump, I think she goes for a white guy as the second person on the ticket. Um, but I think this question raises something that is is also deeper. And um, I take Steve's point about how voters wait and they do wait. Um, there's something there's something going on right now in American politics. There's a possibility, I think, for a realignment in the United States. Um, I wouldn't have predicted this going in. 
because it's been so polarized and you have dysfunction and so forth uh, in Washington. But there's an interesting poll out. Uh, it came out just a couple days ago, the Democracy Core poll, that shows that about 30% of the Republicans are really unhappy with their choices. That is to say, they do not want to vote for Trump, but they don't want to vote for Cruz or Rubio either. These folks have no place to go. And a smart Democratic candidate would try to put together a package of policies to peel those people off to pull them over to the other side and to bring them over for good and turn the other party into a minority party. Now this sometimes happens in American politics, It's very rare. It happened in the 1890s, it happened with Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the 1930s. In a small way it happened with Ronald Reagan, not a massive realignment like the 1930s. It's possible that it could happen today. The problem for the Democrats is that they happen to have a candidate who is good in many respects. She has very high ratings in terms of experience and knowledge. It's through the roof. But she, has very, she scores very low on trust and credibility. So the problem is, is it's not obvious that the Democrats have the right person in place right now to seize what is starting to look like a historic opportunity. Okay, I think we're going to have to call the proceedings to an end. Uh, I think this has been yet another great LSE event. I'd like to congratulate the rest.